Hello and welcome to episode 160 of the UK True Crime Weekly Podcast. I'm Adam. Today's story comes from one of the remotest parts of the UK and features love, passion, intimate pictures, jealousy, violence and monkeys. Now, if you are thinking to yourself, this is just a normal Friday night, please do drop me a private message. As a UK crime podcast, I can't let the latest verdict on the Hillsborough tragedy go without comment. It's beyond my understanding how once again the establishment got away with it and this verdict was reached. My thoughts are with the families and friends of all those involved in the tragedy who have fought so hard to be let down yet again. As always, a huge thank you to all my amazing supporters on Patreon, but especially this week's new members of this exclusive club. That's Alex Whitlock, Laura McNamee, Stephanie Davis, Kat Pope, Jessica and Christine Purvis who has increased her support level. Thank you all so much for your support which is much much appreciated. I hope you enjoyed the 37th bonus episode which dropped as the pro podcasters like me (laughs) say this week. I never quite get that you know. Dropped like what? An egg? Testicles? Who knows? Anyway it's now available. Please do take a look at the UKTrueCrime.com website, where the most recent article is from Chantelle, creator of the Lady Justice pod. It's a really powerful personal piece about the domestic abuse that she suffered called How True Crime Helped Me Survive. Please go and take a look. Okay, let's briefly set some context for today's story by taking a quick look at the music we were listening to at the time, 6th of June 2009. Top of the UK charts was the Black Eyed Peas with Boom Pow Wow with Dizzy Rascal at 2 with Bonkers. The Black Eyed Peas were at number 1 in the US 2 with Boom Pow Wow, later to be replaced by another of their singles, I Got a Feeling. You might have heard that one. And in Australia, they still couldn't get enough of the super heavy stuff. With the number 1 album of the year, Sex Dr- Sorry, I mean I Dreamed a Dream from Friend of the Show, Susan Boyle. In the news this month, Air France 447 crashed into the Atlantic off the coast of Brazil on a flight from Rio to Paris. All 228 passengers and crew were killed. Two metro subway trains collided in Washington DC, killing nine and injuring over 80. Fraudster Bernie Madoff was sentenced to 150 years in prison for running a massive Ponzi scheme. In Australian true crime news, Des Moran, a member of Melbourne's notorious Moran family and brother of Lewis Moran, was shot dead in Ascot Vale. And in the UK, this is the time that the money-grabbing behaviour of a significant number of our MPs was exposed, as the expenses scandal engulfed British political life. A tiny number went to prison, most got away with it. Today's story, a new first for the show, is from the Orkney Islands, a group of islands 10 miles off the north coast of Scotland with a population of just over 20,000. Stunningly beautiful, with awe-inspiring rugged cliffs and the most amazing sea life. The currents around the islands can be brutal, with whirlpools common. Interestingly, there are no trees on the islands. The Orkneys pride itself on no crime, like other areas of the UK, like, well, let's just think it random, shall we? I know, Tresco, 
in the Scilly Isles, for example. No crime happens there either, as the establishment tells us that is the case. Hmm, probably best I rapidly move on with today's story. In 2007, the Daily Mail newspaper carried a piece about John Campbell, known locally as Jack and also the Monkey Man of Orkney. I quote the article briefly. In a beanie hat and workman's jacket, clutching a roll-up cigarette, he strikes an unlikely David Attenborough figure. But this is Jack Campbell, the Monkey Man of Orkney. He is only one of a handful of people in the UK rescuing monkeys from research labs where they have undergone brutal testing. The father of three has been taken in monkeys from research labs for the past 10 years, but he only recently opened his sanctuary on the remote island of Sande to give them a better life. Jack said, We moved here to give them a better quality of life and the locals love it. I'm always getting lots of offers of assistance. At the time of the article, Jack was having a few issues with the red tape imposed by the no doubt well-meaning people at the local authority. Hey, I think most of us can sympathise with that, huh? When we pick up the story in 2009, Jack had split from his wife and was living with his 34-year-old partner, Margaret Johnson, with her two children from a previous relationship and their two-year-old daughter, Brandy. Like many people on Sunday, Margaret had moved to the beautiful island to escape her life on the mainland. Margaret had been living in Falkirk in Scotland when she got herself into debt and worked firstly as a lap dancer and then as a sex worker to earn the money to get her life back on track. As a single mum with two young children, it was a desperately tricky balancing act. But during this tough period with many low points, The one thing that remained constant and was always guaranteed to brighten her mood was her love of monkeys. Margaret had adored the animals from a young age and was devastated when her own pet monkey died. Looking to buy a new one, Margaret scoured the internet where she came across Jack Campbell and Orkney who was selling a marmoset monkey. One thing led to another and they quickly became a couple. And the opportunity to fulfil her childhood dream of setting up a sanctuary was something she couldn't turn down. And so in 2005, she left her old life and moved to Sande on the Orkneys to live with Jack. And the island of Sande holds a great appeal for many, with amazing wildlife and scenery and a population of just around 500. It's the sort of place where nobody bothers to lock their houses and cars. I wonder if that lifestyle appeals to you. But the relationship with Jack was a volatile one and Margaret knew that deep down she cared much more for the monkeys than for him. She'd also discovered that some of the information he told Margaret when she first contacted him online was untrue. He had told her he was suffering from kidney cancer and after splitting from his wife he was in danger of losing his house and the home that he offered for rescued monkeys. It had got to the stage where Margaret often slept in her son's room and felt that although she did continue having sex with Jack, she was really only there for the 30 or so monkeys the pair cared for at their home telegraph cottage. It's really hard to emphasise just how much she loved these monkeys. In reality, the relationship between the two had always been a strange one. Jack had been so besotted with Margaret 
that he'd agreed to a number of unusual conditions that she imposed on him for the two to stay together. For example, he'd accepted her banning him from watching TV or reading newspapers in case he saw topless women. This was, as she told him, she was anti-nudity. Maybe due to her previous work, it's unclear. But maybe it was more down to plain jealousy. This is supported by another of the conditions she imposed, which meant he wasn't allowed to go to the shops or even the pub in case he spoke to other women. Now, I'm no expert on what women find attractive, but I would suggest, with as much respect as I can muster, that 59-year-old Jack, 25 years Margaret Senior, was in looks less Brad Pitt and more like a 1980s Captain Birdseye after a bad night out, and the chances of the women queuing round the block to seduce him were unlikely, to say the very least. What do I know? There was a steady influx of new residents on Sunday, many of whom were escaping their previous lives and making a clean break. Not all stayed as the way of life was not always idyllic in the harsh climate and many discovered that a change of location wasn't enough to escape the issues they were running away from. One of those who came to the island after Margaret and did stay was 54-year-old father of three from Yorkshire, Bob Rose. Bob, who was from Rotherham, had worked in the construction industry and had suffered major financial issues following the death of his wife. So in March 2008, he bought a run-down property on Sunday at a knockdown price and lived there with his three alpacas on his land. Somewhat unkindly, he became known to other residents as Black Bob due to his dirty fingernails. Within weeks of arriving at the island, he was introduced to Margaret and Jack by Jack's friend, 51-year-old Stephen Crummock, who lived in a caravan near Bob Rose's house. Stephen was someone who had struggled on the island and by this time was a barely functioning alcoholic and only just keeping his head above water financially. He wasn't a pleasant drunk and had been banned from pubs due to a number of unfortunate incidents. But Margaret was attracted to Bob straight away and soon the two were having an affair. Explaining the attraction, Margaret told the Scottish Sun newspaper Bob was energetic, lustful and filled with passion. Jack, he was more basic. There was a physical relationship with Jack when I was with Bob. I knew in my heart it was wrong, but I felt guilty and sorry for him. But Bob gave me butterflies in my stomach. I didn't feel that for Jack, but I did care for him and I had my daughter Brandy with him. This affair led to Margaret splitting with Jack and when she told him about her feelings for Bob, he was of course devastated. Firstly, to lose someone he clearly loved. And secondly, on such a small island when everyone knows everyone's business, it was humiliating for him and he had to see both of them regularly. But although Margaret and her three children did move in briefly with Bob, this also proved rather tricky. Her ex-partner didn't think Bob's house was a suitable place for his children to live and he called social services to prevent her staying there. And in addition, Margaret missed her monkeys terribly when she was away from them. She really did adore them. And Jack played on this by saying that on his own he would destroy them. So with her heartstrings tweaked, Margaret went back to live with Jack 
so she could be with her beloved animals. Bob, like Jack, was so head over heels in love with Margaret that he offered to buy the monkeys from Jack for £10,000 in cash so she could come back and live with him and the monkeys. But Jack refused, as he could not possibly lose both Margaret and his monkeys to his rival. The tension this situation caused was deeply unpleasant for all of them, and Margaret was concerned about the effect on her children. For example, on one occasion, Margaret saw Jack with a gun he kept in his house tucked into his trousers. He told Margaret, I'm going to get him, I'm going to end this. And when Jack turned up at Bob's, the reaction from Bob was one of aggression, almost mocking Jack, telling him to come on and shoot me, if that's what you want to do. The police turned up the next day, and it was discovered that the gun that Jack had used was a replica. But even so, this is a situation that could easily have got out of hand, and the animosity between the two men continued, as Margaret increasingly resented the lies that Jack had told her, and also the relationship with Bob was changing. It had cooled significantly, as Bob was drinking way too much. The whole situation was deeply unsatisfactory for Margaret, and eventually, she decided to leave Sunday for good in February 2009, after taking out a £10,000 loan to buy five monkeys and two marmosets from Jack. It was time that Margaret and her children made a clean break. Although not happy to lose Margaret and their three children from the island, Jack did drive her and the children to the ferry. As they passed Bob Rose's cottage, Jack slowed the car and said to Margaret, he's the last person I'd be paying a visit to before leaving the island. Away from the Orkneys and reflecting on her time on Sunday, Margaret became increasingly angry with Jack and she cut off all contact, including blocking him from her phone. She increasingly realised that what had always mattered to her had been the monkeys. But her contact with Bob continued. After Margaret had left, Jack heard from a variety of people that Margaret was still talking to Bob. In fact, she hadn't just been in contact. Considering Margaret had been so adverse to nudity during the course of their relationship, Jack was astonished and upset to hear that Margaret had been sending Bob topless pictures, including one of her in the bath. And Bob had been showing them around the local pub, heaping further humiliation on Jack. The anger he felt rose further. But then on the 8th of June, Bob Rose was reported missing. The last time he'd been heard from was two days earlier, on Saturday, June the 6th, when he sent his daughter Katie a text message replying to hers, asking his plans for the night. He said, ha ha, just having a boy's night in. And on Sunday the 7th, a local hotelier was concerned as Bob always came to his hotel for Sunday lunch. When he failed to show for a pre-arranged lunch date with a local couple, the hotelier became concerned for his welfare and he and two of Bob's friends went to Bob's house. No joy, he wasn't there. Then on to nearby Jack Campbell's, where they found Jack with his pal Stuart Crummock. Neither of them had seen Bob either. The group carried on searching before reporting him as a missing person the following day. The police began a search for Bob 
covering the width and length of the island, which is just 24 miles from top to bottom. Bob's daughter, Katie, came to the island to appeal for any sightings, but it seemed that nobody had seen Bob. What detectives didn't know at this stage was that Jack Campbell, aided by his friend, Stuart Crummock, had murdered Bob. Campbell's motivation was clear, but Crummock too disliked Bob, who was constantly telling him to stop drinking so much and to turn his life around, a message that's hard for any of us to hear. And so on the night of the 6th of June, just after he'd sent that text to his daughter, the two men took their revenge on Bob. They turned up at his house late, after he'd been drinking heavily and was in no state to defend himself. They held him down on his bed and hit him over the head with their fists and other implements and smothered him with a pillow until he stopped fighting. Campbell and Crummock stole his wallet containing £200, wrapped his body in a duvet and left it overnight in his Land Rover Discovery. The next day they drove six miles to Stywick, a quiet part of the island, and buried him in a shallow grave in the sand dunes. They tried to make it look as though Bob had taken the decision to leave the island by driving his car to Loft Pier, where the ferry leaves for the mainland. And they let it be known to numerous people around the island that Bob had told them he was leaving and had, in fact, asked them to look after his dog, Patch. And what did they do with the £200 from his wallet? They spent it on booze and then burnt the wallet in Bob's own fireplace. Staying classy. When detectives learnt of the love triangle, the two men and Margaret were questioned extensively. When the two men were quizzed by detectives, both continued to protest their innocence, saying that as far as they were aware, Bob had left the island and they put up a united front. There was no gap in their stories. Margaret told detectives she thought Jack Campbell was absolutely capable of murder. She told how she had left him after he physically attacked her for the second time. The first time he put his hands around her neck and tried to strangle her, but she still stayed with him. The second time was shockingly violent when he bashed her head on the concrete kitchen floor, making her firmly believe that he could kill her or Bob if pushed. She also told detectives about the shooting incident from the previous year and how another time, just months before the murder, Campbell had got angry with Bob and thrown tiles at him. Margaret revealed to detectives that a couple of weeks before his disappearance, Bob had texted her to say that he had heard Campbell and Crummock were coming to get him, and should he be worried. But he hadn't taken this threat seriously, and why would he? On the surface, the two men seemed very unlikely attackers, and they'd have struggled to overpower the much physically stronger Bob. When asked about the intimate pictures, she said they were something and nothing, just standard stuff. Bob had asked her to send him something saucy, and so she did. She hadn't dressed up specially for the photos, and she told police that Bob would never have shown them to other people. She told how she'd stopped responding to Bob's texts in the days before his death, and how the last text she received from him was on June the 8th or 9th, clearly unaware that he was already dead by then, and it said the following, F off you scotch bitch, I've got myself a real woman. But although Campbell was the prime suspect, there was no real evidence, 
and the two men may have got away with Bob's murder were it not for an incident at the local police station. Crummock saw Campbell laughing with his lawyer at Kirkwall Police Station and took this to mean that he was going to be fitted up over the murder whilst Campbell got away scot-free. So three weeks after Bob's murder, Crummock confessed everything. He told how he'd entered Bob's cottage to see Campbell leaning over the bed and how he was physically shaking. He told how he could see Bob Rose lying face up on the bed and how he noticed there was blood on Bob's face and mouth. He immediately thought that Bob was dead. Crummock told detectives that if it had been discovered that the pair were involved, they were going to say it was self-defence. He led detectives to Bob's burial site in the sand dunes, overlooking the sea, on a particularly desolate stretch of the coast. The experts were called in and sniffer dog Eddie and his handler, who were involved in the hunt for Madeleine McCann and in the sower murders of Jessica Chapman and Holly Wells, arrived at the scene. Eddie quickly located the spot where Bob had been buried. Then a closer search of Bob's home showed a blood spot on a pillowcase, which belonged to Campbell, and DNA matching Crummock had been found on cigarette butts, both in the fireplace and on a sleeping bag. Just how many times do we hear on this podcast that suspects are nailed due to discarding cigarette butts at the scene? Don't these people listen to podcasts? And despite continuing to deny murder to detectives, Campbell struggled to keep quiet about what had happened whilst on remand at Inverness Prison. His cellmate was violent offender Leslie Norcoy, and the two got on well. Although we always have to be cautious with confessions from cellmates, as they often have a vested interest in getting a deal for themselves, this is what he told investigators. He said that Campbell boasted. He told him he had hit Bob with a bit of wood two or three times, put a pillow over his face and smothered him. And then Crummock had lifted the body and buried it. Asked if Campbell had said anything else about Crummock, Norcoy replied, he said it wasn't him that murdered Bob. Jack then winked and said, have you ever heard the saying, getting away with murder? The trial at Glasgow Crown Court lasted four weeks but it took the jury less than six hours to find 59-year-old Jack Campbell guilty of murdering Bob Rose. Stuart Crummock was convicted of culpable homicide and both men were found guilty of trying to defeat the ends of justice for lying that Bob had left the island. Judge Lord Turnbull branded the pair atrocious and callous for their conspiracy to conceal the crime. He told Campbell, You have been convicted of his murder motivated it seems by your dislike of him and your reaction to his involvement with your former partner. He said that Campbell had lied to police and that Bob Rose was a likeable and kind man who was entirely harmless. He added, Having heard the evidence, it was as obvious to me as it was in the end to the jury that you were responsible for Mr Rose's murder. Turning to Crummock, he said, You have also been found responsible for the killing of Mr Rose, but not to the same extent as your co-accused. It's right in your case that I should acknowledge that your conscience did come to lead you to assist the police in a significant way. It is also right to acknowledge that, had you not done so, it is not possible to know 
how the police inquiry would have turned out. Nevertheless, you participated in Mr Rose's killing and must now take the consequences of that. Campbell was sentenced to life in prison and told he must serve at least 16 years before being considered for parole. Cromack was jailed for 11 years in total, 10 years for the culpable homicide and an additional year for the second charge. After the hearing, Bob's daughter, Katie, said, Words cannot describe how much of an impact our dad had on our family and close friends. He was a great man, kind and generous. He was the kind of man who always left a good impression. He will be missed by many and never forgotten. We want to know him for the man that he was, and whatever the sentence, it will never replace the life that has been taken. So what do you make of what we've heard today? A terribly violent death for a man who had moved to the Orkney Isles to start a new peaceful life following the death of his wife. An awful crime, murdered when sleeping in his own bed. Is there anything more cowardly? Should Bob have begun an affair with Margaret, we may ask? It seems that when they first got together, Margaret and Campbell may already have split. But even if not, it's hard to blame Bob for being interested in a very attractive woman 20 years younger than him who showed an interest. I'm not one for making judgments on morality, ever. But people have affairs all the time, and we must remember it was not the affair that led to his pointless murder, it was the violence of Campbell that resulted in Bob's death. I think it's hard to have sympathy for Campbell, as he spends probably the rest of his life in prison. However much he loved Margaret, murdering Bob would not have done anything to change the situation. Margaret was never coming back to him, even if Bob was no longer on the scene, and he must have known that. And of course, he ruined the life of the, it seems, very weak Crummock, who I think we can conclude was a very vulnerable man at the time of the crime, pulled into Campbell's plot. And as for Margaret? Well, let's hope she is able to move on from events on the Orkneys, and she lives happily ever after with her monkeys, and that her children are not too damaged by the dreadful events which took place in somewhere of such beauty and peace. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the UK True Crime Weekly Podcast. To discuss this story, take part in our Christmas quiz, or discuss any aspect of UK True Crime, please do head to our Facebook group, you'll be very welcome. And to support the show, you know you want to really, For just the price of a small mulled wine a month, please head over to patreon.com slash UKTrueCrime and become a better version of you in 2020. So that is it for me for this week. We will speak again next week, but in the meantime, I'm off to see a hypnotist to try to erase the images from my mind about the Crankies' revelations this week about their sex lives during their so-called dirty thirties including details that nobody, nobody ever wants to know about a lion tamer. On that bombshell, unlike the crankies, please stay classy.